This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. You have probably noticed the tendency that we've seen these days to divide people by their named generations. So we have the baby boomers, we have Generation X, Gen Z, we have millennials. But I always thought the best generation name was the one assigned to the World War II generation, also known as the greatest generation. Now, there is a moniker, but in thinking about a greatest generation, I can't help but wonder, along with many other people, if a new generation could ever be called greatest again, or at least great. And what would it take to produce a generation like that? We're going to talk about it today with sociologist and author Jonathan Catherman. He and his wife founded and direct the 1M Mentoring Foundation, which helps adults invest in mentoring relationships to build up teens' skills, character, confidence, and abilities. And today we'll be discussing Jonathan's book, Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. Jonathan, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you, Janet. It's good to be here. Why would you say we need to rethink how to guide the next generation? And how would you define a great generation, just out of curiosity? Mm-hmm. Well, those are two great questions. So let's start with why do we think they will be the next great generation? And, and that'll lead into how we have to rethink uh, ways we're going to lead them. But you take a look at where kids are today. We do a little comparison. And I'm sure you and I have said this a thousand times. When I was your age, yes. and then we compare <laughs> teens today to when we were teens, and it has changed so much. And uh, what they have access to today can either be one of the most remarkable tools that we have ever seen or a great fear that many of us have, and that is technology. Yes. So if we look at young people today and the access they have to the resources that are at their fingertips um, I believe that they can use those resources to do more good in this world than we've ever seen in any generation before. Which is wonderful. Right. We haven't even begun to see what kinds of things can come out of this generation that is so technology savvy, technologically savvy. But but again, we're back to this question about what makes a generation great. When I think about the greatest generation, we think about the courage that that generation had to go and fight World War Two and to triumph over the enemy and Germany and Japan and all the rest. And we say, well, they, they rose to the occasion. But how do you look maybe back at that generation being called the greatest generation? generation versus the ones that are now upcoming? Sure. Well, if we take a look at what has been accomplished, it's an easy read because it's history. We can go back and say, wow, look how far they went, how difficult the task was, what they overcame. We take a look at the young people today and we're now looking forward. So we have to be visionary. So we don't have history to, to, to write the story, but we have to say what story can be written with the resources that they have available to them. So for them to become the next great generation, they will have to accomplish some pretty phenomenal outcomes. And the young people that I'm working with and and have been traveling uh, for 25 years now researching and speaking and writing about young people, 
I'm seeing that they're coming into a time and an age where they are going to do absolutely remarkable things. As an example, there's a group of apprentices that I work with up out of uh, plasma, uh, excuse me, the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. And these are all young adults who are going to discover science that you and I can't even conceive of. Hmm. And they're in their 20s and younger and they are preparing to lead science into a new era that is just absolutely remarkable. Um, I know teenagers who are running food banks that are, a teenager here in North Carolina is running a food bank that serves over 7,000 people a week. Hmm. And she's doing it because she has access to resources, not money, but, but community and social networking and the power to woo, to win others over. She's an absolutely remarkable young lady. They have potential. That doesn't mean they're doing it. And when we look forward, we're looking at potential. They have more potential to do good with the resources that are at their fingertips than we've seen before, like we've already discussed. But when we do a comparison, I don't think they're going to overcome previous great generations. They're just going to be the next great generation. Yes, right. Exactly. So when we're we're looking at the situation as it stands right now, you talk about some of the questions you get from parents and educators about how do we connect? How do we build bridges? How do we do this? And and really, as you mentioned, we have technology. That seems to be a very big dividing line between those of us who were raised in the days before there was such a thing as DVRs and uh, DVD players. (laughs) Uh, and, And now looking at how they can navigate everything online. But what would you say are the biggest things that drive the gap right now? Is it mainly technology or is it something beyond that when parents say, hey, listen, I, there's this gap and I don't know how to get across it? Right. The generation gap. And it, what, what creates the generation gap is um, our experiences or, or shared experiences or lack of shared experiences. And uh, if we were to compare what sits in the palm of a hand of a teenager today and in their, their pocket, the cell phone, and compare it to the phone we had when we were their age. It's no, there's no real comparison, yeah. right? They're not, they don't have phones. They have pocket-sized computers. Mm-hmm. For us to have with us at all times the resources they have with them at all times, you and I, when we were teenagers, would have had to have had multiple semi-trucks following us around <laughs> over where we went, right? Right. right. But they have, it, they have it in their in the palm of their hand. Well, so we, we, that's just a super simple example, but when we take it, okay, how does that compare to our experience? We go, wow, I have no, no understanding of that, no concept from when I was their age. So when we see the generation gap widening, it's because we have fewer and fewer shared experiences. That's why it's so important for parents and grandparents, for educators and teachers and youth pastors and community workers to interact with younger generations Instead of pointing in their direction saying, they're not doing enough to come over here, we need to make certain we're reaching out in their direction as well, because they respond very well to our interest. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them or or even necessarily say, um, like everything. And I'll give you an example. I'm not a video gamer, but my son is. Yeah. I'm not super excited about video games myself, but my son is. You know who I'm excited about? My son. Yes. So now I'm interested in some of the things he's interested in because it's about him, not necessarily about video gaming. Yeah. So I'm trying to reach towards him and say, hey, 
my interest is in you. What are you interested in? And that's what I'm going to align myself beside. Well, now, this raises an interesting question, because when you're talking about fewer shared experiences and a lot of that being technology, is technology itself a bit of the problem? Like if you you think I say this as a mom, if I took the technology away more often, maybe we would have more shared experiences because we would get away from all of this stuff. Right. Well, we throw the word technology out. It's a very big term. We were, we're, what we're really saying is if I take away that device in their hand that distracts them from what I want them to be paying attention to versus what they are paying attention to. Yes. Because if we take technology away, then we have to remove a whole lot of other things that are important to anybody in all generations. Um, so I don't think it's just big term tech. It's the context of attention. Yes. So how are we engaging young people today in a way that draws their attention for any duration of time, short or, or long, um, to a shared experience. So am I inviting my son or my kids to go do things with me? Uh, or am I just like, oh, they wouldn't be interested? Well, I won't know until I give it a go. Um, am I purposely engaging in the conversations, the things they want to talk about versus just me trying to be a sage from the stage and give them a life lesson every time we're, <laughs> right. we're talking? Yeah. Right. So not everything is a, is a battle to be won with this generation by any means but they certainly have demands that are being pressed upon them that they need our guidance beside them in uh, accomplishing. Yeah. Well, and as you point out in the book, in some sense, you really can't close that gap, can you? Not entirely, for no. sure. No, it's, it's, a, it's a distance. We can bridge the gap, but we are not going to close the gap. we we got to find the, the shortest distance between our two points rather than highlight the how far apart we are. Find the narrowest space, and then we need to build a bridge between where they are and where we are, which means we both need to work simultaneously working towards the middle and we meet in the middle and that's where we will connect. Well, and that's a really important thing because I think a lot of parents do worry about that and a lot of educators as well. Another question I want to get into when we come back from the break has to do with what we can teach today's emerging generations to ensure they will one day do and even be better than we are. We're going to tackle that question with Jonathan Catherman when we come back talking about his book, Guiding the Next Great Generation. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll return right after this. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is creating funding difficulties for many of Preborn's clinics with canceled events which help fund the clinic operations. All the while this is happening, our clinics are seeing more and more women in unplanned pregnancies call us as sheltering in orders have generated more unplanned pregnancies. Our call center is flooded with girls calling. Can you help us in this time of increased need? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To help a mom in need choose life, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now. 855-402-BABY. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. 
Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. From now through April, Janet Meffer Today is partnering with Bible League to send Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. And great to be talking with Jonathan Catherman. His book is called Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. I think every single parent listening right now wants to have confident and capable adults and sometimes wonders if our kids will turn out that way. (laughs) It's nice to have a little bit of help in that regard, Jonathan. But one of the questions that you've talked about in the book that you are often asked is, what can we teach the coming up generations to ensure that those teenagers will one day do better than we've done and be better than we've been. How do you begin to answer that question for parents who want to move in that direction? Sure. Okay, I think the first thing we need to address is that um, the kids we we live with in our home, in our classrooms, they face countless demands on them every day that are similar to the ones we grew up with, similar to the ones we face today, but also that are very unique to adolescents. And so if we can help them prepare to take on these demands, they'll see them as challenges. And we love challenges. Our brains love challenges. What mm-hmm. our brains hate are threats. Mm. And if they face the same demands and when they feel unprepared, then they feel threatened. And we have that fight or flight mechanism when the, when we feel threatened. So I'd like to our parents and, and our influencers of the lives of young people to say, okay, how do I help prepare young people today to see the demands of life as challenges rather than threats? And let's jump to like challenge number two. So in the book there, I lay out there are four challenges. And challenge number one is to build bridges between the generations. They say, well, how do you do that? Well, actually, you go challenge two, three, and four helps you build the bridges. So challenge two is to practice stewardship before leadership. And I have heard for years that we got to raise kids up to be better leaders. I've heard coaches tell kids to be leaders and parents tell kids to be leaders. And, I, and, and yet I don't hear a whole lot about the context of stewardship. Right. And if you can learn to be faithful with little, you can learn to be faithful with much. Yes. But if you can't be faithful with little, I don't want you leading anywhere. Right? So we, as we are working with kids to be good stewards of family, of community, of their education, business, government, faith, it is that context of stewardship before leadership. And practice makes perfect is just kind of, we got to get rid of that. Mm. So if we're going to be practicing stewardship, it's practice to get better because there's no such thing as perfect when it comes to practice. Right. But practice does make better. Yeah, that's right. So bridging the gap between the generations, how, what can we teach them? Well, let's teach them to practice stewardship before leadership. And next challenge would be to transform raw talents into valued strengths. And then challenge number four is to live with purpose. All very important. So, for example, when you're talking about practicing stewardship before leadership, one of the things that popped into my head immediately is my husband and I have always taught our kids, 
get a job <laughs> when they're teenagers. We want them to earn their own money so they understand where money comes from, but it's also to build a work ethic. And one of the things we always tell them is you got to start at the bottom. And if you do a good job on the bottom, you'll move up. And I have seen some of the fruits of that in, in our kids' lives, just understanding that you're not owed anything in life. I think that's so much of a problem mm-hmm. in society where kids think, well, I'm bright. I got all A's. I was in National Honor Society. I graduated summa cum laude and I'm now ready to be CEO at 22. You know, it, life doesn't work that way. I, do you find a lot of that being more of a problem now, uh, just with a helicopter parenting and all the rest? Um, kind of a loaded question because there's two kinds of parenting, helicopter parenting and drone parenting. Helicopter means I hover over you, make sure everything's right. Drone is I'm way over there and I just lob something in and make it destroy anybody in your way. <laughs> and, and we've got to be careful to not be either one of those parents. Yeah. So when we set unrealistic expectations for our kids because they get every award, they've got a wall full of trophies, we've told them they're good at everything, we are, we are setting them up for struggle. When you're, I agree with you that um, start at the bottom, but the bottom in our mind is different than the bottom in, in their mind. Hmm. So when we grew up, you had leaders over followers. Right. And you started at the bottom, and, and you worked your way up, hopefully, to a point of leadership. You, They aren't seeing it like that. They have a different model. Instead of two layers, leaders over followers, they see it as membership, welcome to the team, stewardship, responsible management and supervision and protection, what's been trusted to your care, and then leadership. And leadership is an invitation. Like, wow, you are doing such an incredible job. Could you actually have to be doing a good job? Show me how you did that. That's an invitation into leadership. Whereas we've been telling kids all the time, you know, if you just stand up and make a voice or, you know, do the right thing, that's a leader. That's not a leader. I'm, I don't mean to be in the, in the face of parents that are, are telling their kids that they're leaders, but you're not a steward first. You're not a leader yet. Mm. So when we are, I think it's great. Yes, get a job. Work your way up. Um, how about do your own laundry? Yeah, <laughs> I'm all for that. For <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, learn how to practice, practice changing the tire in your driveway before you have to learn on the side of the freeway. These are all little things yes. that build confidence and capabilities that then translate into bigger things like showing up to work on time. Good. like honesty and integrity. Yeah, that's important. So those little things are preparing your kids to become adults, but that's a long process. It's not like you can just take them aside for a one-week boot camp on how to be an adult. You really have to be doing those things in small doses and working your way up all along, it would seem. That's right. And I think that it's it was never too early to start learning and practicing. And parents, please remember that a lesson's not a one-and-done deal. It's not a one-and-done teach. Right. So... Um, you know, they're practicing something over duration of time, years, they will get better over years. And we have parents have to be patient with that process. Sure, that's right. Well, what about the issue of talents, the, the um, you know, the challenge that you mentioned about transforming raw talents into valued strengths? Yeah. Because you are born with a certain amount of talent in whatever area, if it's academics or music or sports or what have you, how do you advise parents to transform those talents into valued strengths and, and really build character in their kids? Sure. I think it starts with changing a bit of our language about what talent is, because how many times I've heard a parent say, oh, my son's such a talented football player, or uh, my daughter is a very talented uh, soccer goalie. 
Uh, my son is a talented guitar player. My daughter's a talented piano player. And I say, no, they're actually not a talented piano player, soccer player, football player, guitar player. There's no such thing as a talented uh, uh, football player. There's a talented athlete who's <laughs> trained in football, or there's a talented musician who's trained in piano. But we need to get back to what talent truly is, because the world, when they step outside of the, the shelter and support of our home, the world is looking for strength. You've got to be able to contribute more than you expect to take away. And so, and that also plays into, um, you know, going to work and, and what are you going to get paid at work? If you have a strength in the workplace, then you will be more valued in the workplace. If you just have talent that hasn't been developed, then you know what? We're looking for the strength in this, in this organization. So the way to develop strength is, is a combination of identify what talent is, include now training, commit to the time, which is practice and patience over, over duration, probably years, and then be a good steward of your treasures. So it's talent, training, timing, and treasures. Those four things combined build the strength. And it's something that doesn't happen, you're right, in a weekend boot camp. It takes time. It takes years, and it takes consistency on our parenting guiding side. That's right. Well, well, there are a lot of different directions you could go with that advice, but what would be an example of that? If you have a kid with a certain talent in a certain area, how do you get to the strength portion of your advice? Sure. Um, here's a fun one. Uh, your listeners will probably be able to relate. Do you have a child that likes to argue? They might not always be right, but they're certainly never wrong. And everybody knows that that kid you know, in, in the family. Well, good. That actually is a talent. To be able to put up a good argument is a talent. Then have they been in the debate class? Yeah. Um, are they interested in politics or apologetics? Where, how can they be trained so that that critical mind, their desire to, to put facts and, and argue points is put into a form of practice? And then commit the time um, and training to that because it's, it's going to be practice and patience for it. And then when we get over to the treasures part, so if you have a, a son or daughter who really likes to debate and you've, you've figured this out when you were, they were young, and now they're into middle school, high school, or off into college, the treasures are equally as important. Treasure is, is your reputation. It's your finances. Um, it's, it's the relationships you have and the opportunities that present themselves. If we squander our treasure, then we don't get to live in our strength to its fullest value. So please, parents, guide your kids to be good stewards of the treasures of their life because that will open up the door to access to strengths. That's good. So That's good. They have all the talent, they have all the training, they have, they have all the time commitment. The treasure is the key to strength. Very good. And what about living with purpose? Things like fulfilling your vision and having goals in life and that sort of thing. Um, how would you guide parents in that regard? So, Vision, mission, goals are the three values of, of living with purpose in, in the context of, and we can get very specific about what is like God's purpose for our life. And, and I love going there, and certainly authors have gone there for years. I'm talking about what is the purpose of why a person gets out of bed and puts two feet on the floor each day. And when you're young, that's a difficult thing to see. So we start with what's the vision, that clear mental picture of the preferred future. And it, it's kind of like when you stand on your tiptoes trying to see over the horizon or bend your head like you're looking around a corner. You can't actually see it with your eyes, but you can in your mind. Ask your kids, where do you see yourself? What do you see yourself doing and who do you see yourself being in a year or three years or five years? Or if you could fast forward to any age, give me a vision of what that looks like. 
Because if we can't see it, it's really hard to move in a direction to complete it. Yes. So get them thinking about who do I want to be, what do I want to do, and that because vision is your where, where mission is your why. You know, what's your driving force? Is it because you're kind, or is it because you love justice? Is it because you're competitive? Uh, why do you feel this way? Why is that vision driving you forward? And, and kind of what's the fuel behind it is that mission. And the goals are the what. That's what you got to do to accomplish it. This is the really hard one. It's from point A to point B in a duration of time. We got to be able to measure progress. And you got to get countable. Um, we know that if you just have a, a goal, I think it's a really good idea, you're about 10% likely to follow through with it. If you have a good accountability partner, that move, that move jumps up to 95% likely to accomplish. So Goodness. parents, please become a really good accountability partner with your kids. Very good. Jonathan Catherman, thanks for being with us, guiding the next great generation. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. It has been very interesting to see the leftist response to Earth Day this week. I just every year when it rolls around, I just kind of roll my eyes along with it. <laughs> Earth Day rolling around. My eyes are rolling around. It's kind of fun. But it is interesting to see what the left's response is every single time Earth Day pops up. The Pope reacted in typical fashion. Pope Francis made an impassioned plea for protection of the environment, saying the coronavirus pandemic had shown that some challenges had to be met with a global response. And the headline on this piece over at, I think this is Reuters, says, on Earth Day, Pope says nature will not forgive our trespasses. Well, last I checked, nature can't forgive anything because nature and God are not synonymous. There's a creator and there's his creation and they're separated from one another. And so I wouldn't expect that the tree could forgive me or the river could forgive me or any other thing in nature would ever have any moral authority over me whatsoever. But the Pope says if we have deteriorated the earth, the response will be very ugly. Very ugly. And you know what this is all about? This is all about the new Green Deal or the Green New Deal or whatever they want to call it in any particular quarter where they're pushing this climate change nonsense. I I just it's so old, but it's weird to me. What I've really focused in on as I'm reading a lot of these stories about it is the fact that they are anthropomorphizing the earth. It's gone from let's take of the care of the environment, with which I completely agree. I, I, I don't like littering. I don't want dirty water. I don't want polluted air. I'm not for those things. But I am against turning nature into a god. Is that not what Romans 1 specifically condemns? This is how God describes 
the downgrade of mankind when it talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. In other words, you can tell there's a God because you can look all around you and see evidence for it. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what's the next Verse, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And it goes downhill from there. But it all starts with this real confusion about the role of the planet in your life. It is creation and there's a creator over it. And you have a moral responsibility to him because he is God. He gave you life and breath and everything that is and everything you have. And you are completely dependent on him at all times. So you need to heed his word, but that's not what's going on. Here's another example of this. This is from the UN website. I don't usually frequent the UN website, but this is interesting. They say on this particular story, COVID-19 pandemic, an unprecedented wake-up call for all inhabitants of Mother Earth. Okay, there's no Mother Earth. There's just a planet that God created, but Mother Earth, Mother Earth it is. And I want to play for you a little message here from Inger Anderson. She is the UNEP chief and released a video to commemorate the Mother Earth Day. I guess they're calling it the International Mother Earth Day. With Like how Gnostic and creepy can you get? It just used to be Earth Day, didn't it? Now it's International Mother Earth Day. It's just, no, we're not doing that. But listen to some of what she had to say. Cut one. But we are beginning to understand that the more we have put pressure on nature, the more that is then impacting us. We have, as humanity, impacted and altered about 75% of the surface of planet Earth. And we've done so, of course, to be able to live on this planet and to enable civilizations and humanity to thrive. But we've also encroached on nature, caused forest degradation and landscape degradation and engaged in illegal wildlife trade. And each of these has been a component that has led us to where we are today. And in so doing, we are beginning to understand now that healthy people and a healthy planet is part and parcel of the same continuum. But we also understand that climate change could cause an even greater danger. And therefore, a three to four degree warmer world is something that we cannot even begin to imagine. Okay, hang on just a second here, because she began that entire diatribe by citing the coronavirus. At this time of COVID-19, things are so horrible and there is illegal wildlife trade. And what does that have to do with coronavirus? Honestly, what does that have to do with anything? The coronavirus, so far as we know, came from Wuhan, China. You know, the communists over in Wuhan, the communists over in China who are now being sued by states like Missouri and other private firms over causing such widespread destruction and death and sickness and economic turmoil. 
China. You know, China, you don't want to talk about those Marxists because you guys are Marxists also and nobody wants to hold them accountable. And this is why President Trump pulled the funding from the World Health Organization because they basically didn't want to throw China under the bus and now we're all paying the price for it. Why don't you talk about that? No, she doesn't talk about that. She does talk about this, though. Listen to cut two. But as professionals who work in the environment sector, COVID also presents us with some to-do items. We need to ensure, first of all, that we deal with medical waste in a responsible way and help our health professionals to do just that. We also need to um, make sure that as we provide stimulus, as countries provide stimulus to economic growth to get out of the crisis, that we help find ways to build back better, build back greener, ensure that there are green jobs as we transition into green infrastructure, into green opportunities, into green jobs. And finally, of course, we need to transform the relationship between human beings and nature, make sure that we understand how zoonotic diseases develop and ensure that we can protect humankind, but also protect animals to ensure that we do not have these uh, transmission pathways and pathogens going between people and animals. All this is, is taking the current situation and exploiting it for what their real agenda is. And that is exactly what she said. We want a green economy. We want to redistribute the wealth. We want to push this climate change agenda on all of you. And this is the perfect crisis that we won't let go to waste. Because when I go to this story and I go back to the General Assembly president, what is his name? Mohammed Bondi. That's his last name. Uh, This is what he says. He reaffirmed the UN's commitment to promote harmony with nature for a just, sustainable and prosperous society. In his message, he conceded that the law suffering unprecedented challenges created by COVID-19 has affected everyone's daily lives and awoken us to the fact that solidarity is our best and first line of defense. How about dealing with communist China? Might that be a better first line of defense? Deal with them. No, they're never going to talk about that. And he gave some stupid quote that I'm not going to bore you with. But then it goes on in the story to extrapolate out some of what his thoughts are. He underscored the importance of prioritizing the sustainable use of planetary resources when pursuing industrial growth, notably in food production and agriculture, and to protect biodiversity and climate action efforts, industrial practices, and urban expansion. Hold on a moment. Hold the phone. Urban expansion, protecting urban, urban areas are where you've had the most problems with the spread and the deaths associated with COVID-19. I just like to point that out. I know in Agenda 21 that these UN globalist types want to move us all into cities. We've done interviews, for example, with Tom DeWeese from the American Policy Center talking about that. They want to move us all into cities. That's that's where all this green agenda stuff is going to be. The coronavirus pandemic shows why, in many cases, living in a rural area is a pretty smart idea. I mean, you have challenges in either area. But he goes on to say, we will only preserve Mother Earth through a paradigm shift from a human-centric society to an Earth-centered global ecosystem. And no, we're not doing that. 
calling education critical to safeguarding our planet. Mr. Mohammed Bandi maintained that everyone has something to teach and something to learn. And by working together, the world could implement the SDGs in harmony with nature. I don't know. You know what? Environmentalism is not the same thing as your Marxist redistribution of wealth agenda. And we're not going to exploit the COVID-19 pandemic in order to bring it about. Not so long as I, as a freedom-loving American, and you as a freedom-loving American, will stand firm and say, no, we're not doing that. More to come. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians. And through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I think I could live the rest of my life happily, never, ever hearing the phrase Mother Earth again. And it's just so blatant the way that a lot of these greenies are trying to exploit the pandemic for their climate change agenda. It's so transparent. It's so ridiculous. And I was playing some of the cuts for you of this Inger Anderson with the UN. Oh, well, we're going to learn from this and create green jobs. What, what in the world do green jobs have to do with a virus that started in a Chinese lab? A bunch of communists who didn't tell us in time that they had this deadly virus and it spread and the World Health Organization enabled them to kind of cover it up until it was already out of control. So here we are. But we have all these greenies out there talking about Mother Nature and Mother Earth and doing the Romans one thing and it's all about the creation. It's all about the planet. Where is any attention being drawn to the creator, to God himself, to the fact that we have offended him and we have broken his law and we have grieved him and we have incurred his wrath? We have. 
It's just a fact. The Bible says so, and we know that God's word is true. Michael Moore is a perfect example of this. He was over on MSNBC with Brian Williams, and this was Earth Day chat, I guess. Listen to this, cut three. As a political and journalism issue, when does climate change come roaring back to the front page and the very top of the newscast? I love it when I see during that, whatever that month is that MSNBC, the whole logo is all green. And, and, I, and I know the commitment on the part of your company to this issue because it's not a partisan issue. It's this planet belongs to all of us. But there's so much more we need to do. And we've got to come out of this pandemic and on the other end of this. And we've got to say, you know, one of the reasons we were just in this pandemic was because nature was reacting to something that we have been doing to this planet. This virus just didn't come out of nowhere. It, it happened because of the way that we've been treating other species and how it made its way from these species to us. We need to really examine this. I think, frankly, I think Mother Nature has uh, put us in its timeout room right now, literally, not just figuratively, uh, huh. so that we maybe well, have some time to think about how we're treating this planet. But we've got to change. This is what is counting for so-called intelligent discourse on your local TV news station. Mother Nature's putting us in time out. I'm a filmmaker who constantly rags about the progressive causes and then says it's not a partisan issue. And nature was reacting to something we're doing to the planet. Or the communists in Wuhan, China, were messing around in a lab and things got out of control and they tried to cover it up and a lot of people died. That, that might be an alternative narrative. Yes, we do want to take care of our planet, but it's just he's just lying. It's ridiculous. Why can't these lefties admit what really is going on? Now, over at CNN, I have to play these for you because they're so entertaining and, and they're sad at the same time. But Bill Weir over at CNN said coronavirus has helped humanity. Really, it, it's helped humanity. How is that the case? Let's listen to cut four. What about the effects that are harder to see? What is this pause in the Industrial Revolution doing to the chemistry of our sky? Locals in northern India say they can see the Himalayas for the first time in decades. And before and after satellite imagery shows how nitrogen dioxide pollution over North America's big cities is down by as much as 30%. But the blanket of heat-trapping gases around our planet is still thicker than ever. And there seems to be this perception that maybe the virus has helped humanity buy some time when it comes to global warming. What's what's wrong with that assumption? Um, we'd have to keep doing this even more and do it for the next 30 years to really begin to bend the curve on the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's kind of like having a really huge bathtub uh, in the sky filled with pollution and we have the faucet pouring, pouring, pouring more in. And all we've done is kind of turn down the faucet a little bit, but it's still filling up. Oh, okay. Well, millions of people have lost their jobs in the United States and there are food lines now and there are threats of worldwide famines and you have economic collapse right and left and the hospitals don't have enough patients and they're losing money hand over fist. But at least people in India can see the Himalayas. Isn't that good? Doesn't that make you feel better? You can see the Himalayas. You know, you can see the Himalayas on a clear day in India, even without a pandemic. What kind of reporting is this? Let's let him finish. Cut five. 
Thanks to the current oil crash, when the lockdown is lifted, we'll see the lowest gas prices in generations. And with Donald Trump's Environmental Protection Agency gutting dozens of regulations, experts say a spike in pollution seems inevitable. Both the EPA and Earth Day were born when the air and water got too foul for everyday Americans to ignore. Fifty years later, science is warning that the storms, floods, and fires of the climate crisis are growing too frequent and too severe to ignore. Saving what's left will take everyday folk everywhere, deciding that their planet deserves more than one minor holiday like a dead president, deciding that to save life as we know it, every day should be Earth Day. Virologists for years tried to warn us that an invisible enemy would come out of the jungles if we just kept cutting all of them down. And they were right. So if any good can come of this, Allison, maybe it's it's an understanding that the climatologists who are warning about the invisible enemy up in our sky and in our seas, maybe we should take them seriously, too. Oh, boy. Well, what aren't they talking about? What aren't they saying in that report? They're talking about your invisible enemy and and people need to make every day Earth Day. What are they missing here? Seems to me what they're missing is God. From the very beginning, when I was talking about Romans chapter one, I thought they're always focused on the earth and not on the creator of the earth. What do you think the creator and his involvement is in in this current crisis? I've seen Christian articles actually saying God has nothing to do with this. Now, whether or not you believe that this is one of the judgments that is mentioned in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and Jesus mentioning earthquakes and pestilences and famines, this could or could not be part of those particular birth pangs. I personally think that they are because that's exactly what Jesus described. But even if you don't believe that, how can you say God is not involved? Are we back to the to the watchmaker theory, the deists of the early uh, American founding that God is like a watchmaker? He winds up the world and just watches it run out? Because some Christians that I'm reading are speaking this way. I went back to a really good sermon transcript from Ray Stedman. You might remember him from Peninsula Bible Church years ago. He's one of my favorites. And he was writing about Matthew 24 and talking about all of the things Things Jesus said about what the signs would be of the end of the age. And we've talked about this passage before, but he talks about the natural calamity section where Jesus says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. And in the King James, it talks about pestilences. And Ray Stedman says for almost 2000 years, these natural calamities have been occurring. They are not therefore signs of the times. Jesus simply states that during the intervening age, there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes, and other natural disasters and each one will be a threat to belief in God. Sometimes Christians mistakenly try to convince skeptics that God is love by parading the evidence of nature. They describe the beauty of the sunset, the glory of the mountains, etc. But what becomes of that argument when the tornadoes and earthquakes bury one's children in their ruins and famine takes the bread from their lips and parents must watch their children's distended bodies with no food to give them? Where then is the argument for the love of God as revealed in nature? How do you preach God's love to those who are stumbling along in dumb terror, fleeing a volcano? Who's not felt the shivers of doubt that come when we read of terrible disasters or calamities? Such doubt can be answered by a clearer understanding of the purposes and the workings of God. But how many are pressured by grief to believe the apparently obvious and will not wait for an explanation? Surely we need the Lord's warning, take heed that no one leads you astray. And I thought that was a really good point. And he also talks about the rise in cynicism. 
In close connection, Jesus adds, many false prophets will arise. This is at the end of the age. And lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. Here, the peril is cynicism. It is cold and brutal indifference, which arises out of the teaching of false prophets. Do not read this as though there are religious men meant here exclusively. The false Christs the Lord mentioned earlier were unquestionably religious. Here he uses the term prophet, which refers to any who speak authoritatively. Philosophers, professors, scientists, statesmen, those leaders of thought who shape and mold the thinking of the common man. Interesting, isn't it? What they will teach is the sanctity of self-interest, the insistence on having my rights no matter what happens to the other fellow. The true prophet insists on the rights of God, but the false prophet upholds only the rights of man. And isn't that interesting at a time when we're looking to the experts and the elites to tell us how to think and what to do and how to mold policy and tell me how long I have to be locked out of my house. We have to remember that false prophets don't just occur in the religious realm, but also in the secular realm. And we need to know, like Amy Grant used to sing, we need to know who to and who not to listen to. The word of God is what you should listen to. The Word of God is what you should study and meditate on and believe and cling to at this time of a pandemic and not just during crisis times, but every time in which you live. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you for being with us. God bless you. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.